You're listening to the First Baptist Church Broken Arrow podcast. To learn more about the church, visit us at fbcba.org. Today's sermon comes from our pastor, Dr. Matt Brooks. Well, good morning, church. If you would, please open your Bibles to me, the book of Acts this morning, Acts chapter 27. Acts chapter 27, as we've been walking through some of the most significant stories in this part of Acts in a series called Gospel Shorts, the Real Gospel in the Reels of Acts. Today, we are going to talk about one of the most bizarre instances in the entire book of Acts, in Acts chapters 27 and 28. We're going to talk at length about a storm, a shipwreck, and a snake bite. And so as you continue to follow Christ this week and, and you're needing encouragement as, as you walk through some storms, as, as, as you uh, hopefully uh, don't have to navigate a shipwreck, please just avoid snake bites altogether. But, but as you continue to follow Christ this week, our content team has put together a devotional that walks right alongside this sermon that you're about to hear. Text the word sermon to 45776. There's just something significant about water throughout the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. I'll remind you that that one of the greatest expanses of God's creation is found in Genesis 1, where he creates the water in the expanse by his very words. You then see one of the greatest instances of God's deliverance in the entire Old Testament is where literally God's people being in bondage for 400 plus years, God parts the Red Sea so then they can escape Pharaoh, so that they can receive their own salvation. Water has a significant investment, not just in the Old Testament, But in the New Testament, you have the baptism of Christ in Matthew chapter 3, a display of the coronation of God's Son for who He rightfully is as God's King. He is set apart. No wonder the heavens declare His glory. Behold, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased, God says. You then have instances of who Jesus is, not just who God proclaimed it to be, but he has an instance where he walks on water. Now, I've been to the Sea of Galilee. That's no small endeavor in and of itself. There's just something significant about water. And so when we come to Acts chapter 27, Paul is on his way to Rome. He's going to have to navigate through the Mediterranean Sea a tempiest situation a storm that is going to rise out of nowhere, and he's going to have to trust the Lord, remain steadfast in his faith. There's just something about water. This is one of the most interesting tales in the entire Bible. You know, Brent and I have had a certain similar incident. Uh, when we were first married, we spent our honeymoon on a cruise heading to Plow de Carmen and Cozumel. For whatever reason, us flatlanders, Bryn had seen the ocean before, had been on the ocean before. Uh, I had kind of seen the ocean from a distance, but had never been on the ocean. So we decided, hey, you know what would be a good idea for a honeymoon? We're going to go on a cruise. So we drove all the way down to New Orleans, and we were headed to these beautiful, beautiful islands. And when we get there, for those of you who have been on a cruise, you kind of know the spiel. There's incredible food. There's all these shows and everything else. For those of you who don't or haven't been on a cruise, let me enlighten you with some things. Number one, you're going to go to these islands that you've never been before that no one else speaks English in, and you're going to need to do these things called excursions. And what they are is that they're these kind of fun-filled events that you've never done before, probably don't ever want to do again, and you're going to pay a lot of money to do it. And so Brent and I, when we were looking at this list, you know, you could go hand gliding and parasailing and sky diving. You could swim with, you know, sharks and dolphins and all of these things. And so we were kind of looking at this list of not just what we wanted to do, but we, what we could afford to do. And so we chose snorkeling. And so snorkeling is kind of this creative form of swimming and you have these goggles and we were just, just beheld in God's creation. We were enlightened to a whole nother universe that we never even knew existed because we're from Oklahoma. Not a lot of beaches and oceans around here, all right? 
And so we're seeing these beautiful fish and we're seeing these amazing coral reefs and there were these huge turtles that our guide kind of grabbed and you know, we got to kind of swim with the turtles a little bit. And, and about three hours in, we made our way to this cabana in the middle of the ocean somewhere near Cosmel. And we were having lunch there and it was just absolutely incredible. We were having tamales and homemade tacos. Our guide's name was Pedro and he was serenading us as we were eating. It was just an absolute unbelievable thing. And then all of a sudden I look in the distance and there are thunderheads developing. So even though I'd never been on the ocean before, even though I'd never been snorkeling, swim with the turtles, I knew what those were. And so sure enough, Pedro and his, his little buddy, they began talking amongst each other. And they began, you could tell, they quickly knew what was happening. And as the waves began to increase, they began loading up all of their gear, all of our food into their little boat. And so we began asking very obvious questions to Pedro and his compadre. Hey, how are we going to get back? It took us multiple hours to even get here. How are we going to do that? And it was amazing how, you know, his English was so great an hour earlier when we were eating, but now it wasn't so great. And so the plan basically was they were going to throw us on the boat with them. And so we were in this little dinghy of a boat behind the main boat. And I couldn't tell what was better, you know, to, to die from being drowned in the middle of the ocean or exhaustion all the way back to the beach as the storm just came upon us. And so by God's grace, we load up all of this junk into this bus and we're about to head back to the cruise ship and the bus won't start. We made it safe. Nothing, no power, no hope. And so obviously there began a pretty robust discussion on how we were gonna get back to the cruise ship. In the meantime, the rains come, the flood commences. And so, you know, we kind of have the, the windows up and we're beginning to kind of know one another to kind of spare the time. And, you know, we're sharing stories about how we got here and how we did all of these things. And after a couple of hours of this absolute downpour, you know, the effects of lunch began to kind of overwhelm the inside of the bus. And there was a lot going on here. And so we went to Pedro, how are we going to get back to the cruise ship? And so his idea was he was going to go get some other vehicle and leave us here. We didn't think that was a good idea at all, but they didn't take a vote. And so he leaves. So he leaves and we're in and amongst each other for what seemed like forever, but it was really about just another hour. And there was one man from Texas. The older, the older I get, the more I realize there's always just one guy from Texas, right? And he has this idea that he's going to work his way back to the cruise ship, that he's going to notify someone there, and they're going to come back and they're going to get us. We said, that's not a good idea. We need to all stay together. All of these signs are in Spanish. We're in some part of the world we've never been before. How are you even going to tell them where they are or how to get back to us? He said, good idea. And so by God's grace, in the midst of this discussion, somebody on the bus said, look, and we look out, and the storm subsided, the clouds parted, and we saw the most beautiful sunset that you've ever seen in your entire life. Through hours of discussion, we were lost, we were in the middle of nowhere, couldn't communicate, it seemed like all was lost. We could have been on any other expedition and wanted to, frankly, than this one. We could have chose other excursions, but we would have missed the most beautiful sunset that we've ever seen. And Brent and I, 19 years later to this day, still talk about that sunset. And when you come to Acts chapter 27 and 28, that's exactly what I want to encourage you with this morning. Today, I want to talk to you about how to, na how to navigate the storms of life, how to re remain hopeful 
when everything else around you appears hopeless. We're going to take the faith of Paul through a storm, through a shipwreck, through a snake bite. And may that embolden us to stay aboard, to keep going, to remain steadfast in our faith for God. Paul is on his way to have his case heard before Caesar. He'd been a prisoner for two years, but in a small seam of justice in Acts chapter 26, verses 30 to 32, he's declared innocent by the Roman court. He is now on his way to Rome via the sea. Now, interestingly enough, from Acts chapters 9 30, all the way through Acts chapter 28, verse 10, there are 11 separate accounts of Paul traveling to some destination by the sea. Overall, about 3,000 miles that Paul, throughout his missionary journeys, was on the sea. Paul knew the sea well, but this final sea journey stands alone. It is the most dynamic in all of the book of Acts. It echoes the storm-ridden story of Jonah in the Old Testament, which we will study next year right here in 2024, by the way. However, unlike Jonah, Paul does not run from the will of God, but rather he faces the storm. He follows God's plan through a perilous typhoon, through a catastrophic shipwreck, even a frightening snake bite. He teaches us and reminds us that nothing can hinder God's plan for our lives. Not storms, not shipwrecks, not snake attacks, not vengeful schemes of man's, not by the stupidity of our leaders, the effectiveness or impotence of government. Nothing can thwart God's plan in our lives. God's dominion is total. God does as he wills, and he chooses to carry out his will in your life. For God is over all things in accomplishing his purposes for our lives. In fact, interestingly enough, According to 2 Corinthians 11, verse 25, Paul had been shipwrecked three times in his ministry. The, the God subsequently, through other previous experiences, had been preparing Paul for such a time as this. And the same God who prepared Paul prepares you. The sea throughout the Bible is considered a place of darkness, a place of demonic chaos that only God alone could subdue. But it will be God through Paul, the apostolic power of Paul that will be on display in these chapters. It will be Paul who, though a prisoner, will be calm. It will be Paul, though, who enslaved is free to trust the Lord. Paul will provide encouragement. Paul will provide nourishment. Paul will display the healing power of Jesus Christ. And as typical in the book of Acts, God continues to save people and spread his word in the most unexpected ways. We can learn much from a storm, a shipwreck, and a snake bite. And so why don't I set this setting? And why don't I use this once again to encourage you to stay aboard, keep going, remain steadfast in your hope and faith for the Lord. All aboard is what I'm calling this sermon from Acts chapter 27 and 28. Now let me set this stage. Paul is on his way via the sea to Rome. I'll remind you that two years prior in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, the Lord Jesus Christ himself had promised Paul, you're gonna go to Rome. You're gonna stand before Caesar. You're gonna give an account. And so notice God did to Paul what he often does to us. He makes you wait and trust him. Be rooted and grounded in him. 
And so as Paul is on his way in the Mediterranean Sea, suddenly the Bible says in verse 14 of Acts chapter 27, a fierce wind comes from the Northeast. It rushes down and overwhelms the ship. More than likely, this was a typhoon-type storm. Not good. All we know is that the storm is so severe that it impairs the ability of the sailors to navigate the ship while sailing. Things are so desperate, the passengers actually begin to throw their cargo off the ship in verse 18. Luke, the historian, builds this story to this point. Now let's read verses 18, 19, and 20. Since we were then vitally storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and the no small tempest lay on us, all hope of being saved was at last abandoned. Now think about this. This storm is so bad, it covers the sun, the moon, and the stars. There is no radar in Acts chapter 27. There is no GPS. There is no maps or Siri, where am I in the Mediterranean? Good luck. All of that has been covered. They have no proper means to navigate anything. The situation is so grim. Even Luke, the historian, says the storm has left us abandoned. We are stuck, aimlessly wandering in the middle of nowhere in the Mediterranean Sea. Now, for those of you who know your sea history, this story is actually rampant throughout all of history. In fact, this specific, specific story is very similar to the situation of the renowned ghost ship, the Octavius, in the 18th century. There was a ship named Octavius that was found off the coast of Greenland in 1775. Now, that's not significant in and of itself, but what they found on that ship was. Once the ship was found in Greenland, the observers thought the ship was naturally vacant. There would be no one there at all. To their amazement, spine-shivering amazement, they found in actuality that the entire crew was below the ship, that the entire crew had been frozen for decades. In fact, the captain said stoically, frozen in time with pen in hand, for the last log that he ever mentioned in the captain's log was November the 11th, 1762, 13 years prior to being discovered. That according to the manifesto, this ship was off the coast of Alaska and the Arctic waters, freezing temperatures, froze this capsule in time. It wandered off 275 miles and discovered 13 years later, frozen in time. Now, do you think your life is like that sometimes? As you continue to follow Christ and trust Christ, does it seem that that your faith is like that with the Lord, that you're stuck in some unbearable, ongoing situation? You're just wandering aimlessly, waiting upon the Lord? That is exactly what is happening for about two weeks in Acts chapter 27 in the Mediterranean with these occupants of this ship and the Apostle Paul. Unwavering faith is needed to stay the course in an uncertain world. Fearful and starving in verse 21, the crew and the occupants of this ship, 276 in totality, had gone over 14 days without eating. For some of us who go 14 minutes without eating, you can appreciate the situation. What do you do? 
Paul, being the man of God that he is, stands among them and begins to speak on God's behalf and urge them to trust in the Lord. Look at verses 22 through 25. Yet now I urge you to take heart, Paul says. Be of good cheer. Why in the world would they do that? Why? We've been wandering for 14 days, Paul. We haven't eaten. We haven't slept. We have no idea where we are. We don't know where the sun is. We can't find the moon, the stars. We're lost. Why should we take heart? Because, Paul says in verse 22, there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and to whom I worship. Not the angel, but God. And he says, do not be afraid, Paul. Why? Because he was terrified, that's why. Because everyone was terrified. Notice that their greatest concern, their life, God had an answer for. Notice that their greatest present challenge, fear, God had an answer for. Because he said, Paul, you must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart. You notice the repetition there? Take heart, for I have faith that God will be it exactly as I have told you. Paul was fearless in the midst of this storm. He exhorts him through this God-centered message to have courage, to be of good cheer. Why? Because no one's going to lose their life. This storm is not going to take from anyone. Only the ship will perish. Now notice the assurance Paul gives them is not based upon his own intuition. It's, it's not based upon his own goodwill, but faith in the message that the angel from God had given him. He was trusting the word of God more than the words of men. Notice how resound and steadfast he is in the promises of God. Jesus had promised Paul two years prior in Acts chapter 23, verse 11. You're going to go to Rome. You're going to stand before Caesar. Paul didn't have a clue where he was. No one on the ship knew where they were in the Mediterranean. All Paul knew was he wasn't in Rome yet. Paul was living with him in mind that everyone on the ship is going to make it. Why? Because Paul's on the ship and God is with Paul. So you stay right here. Don't jump off. Stay aboard. Stay focused. Remain steadfast. And we're going to get through this. Can I tell you that everyone in your life needs this truth? Everyone that you come across needs this encouragement. I remember I was in Israel this summer with about 35 of our people. And we were coming back from Israel. We landed in JFK in New York City. And there's not necessarily a direct flight from JFK to Tulsa. There's one in LaGuardia, but not JFK. So we had to catch a connection flight in Charlotte, North Carolina. Great place of our country, really fun airport. Got a lot of good food there, some good barbecue. Yeah, they have Chick-fil-A in case you're wondering. Yeah, pretty great place. But every time I've flown out of Charlotte now, four or five times, there's always inclement weather. Something always happens in regard to the weather. So sure enough, we're heading to Tulsa. We got up just fine. Everything was great. And when we were in the air about 15 to 20 minutes and our plane about started shaking. Not good. So the pilot, you know, makes the announcement, put on your seatbelts, you know, all this other stuff, you know, there's nowhere else to go. We're, we're here. 
And so sure enough, for about an hour, we're just shaking. And I've got my girls with me, Maggie and Gracie. They went on the trip. Bryn was there as well. And so we kind of took up this entire row. And there was a lady sitting right next to us. And we began this conversation through the plane. And so about halfway through the trip, I began to open up my Bible because I'm preaching on Sunday to be with you. And so I'm getting ready and she kind of sees this and man, this plane really starts shaking and she kind of nudges me and says, hey, is there anything in that book about feeling safe on a plane? It's a good question. And so I began to remind her of the hope that we can have in Christ. That, that faith isn't just kind of this nebulous thought or belief, but, but no, that it's the confident expectation of what we have in Christ. And I also began to tell her that in so many ways that the Lord had laid on my heart a specific message for God's people and, and that I was convinced that he was determined for those people to hear this message and that we're going to make it home just fine. And if not, then we're going to be with him. And it was just this wonderful, warm conversation. Are we taking advantage of such opportunities? You see, a fearful world needs to see a fearless faith. By God's grace, we can be hopeful when things all around us appear hopeless. Did you see how Paul gives this message to them? That God remind, or that Paul reminds them that God is ever present in this time of need. That God shows up. That God is right in the midst of this storm. I can't help but think who this week, someone around you needs to hear this truth. You know, this is something that has guided not just Paul, but some of the greatest leaders of our country. I heard of a story this week of Abraham Lincoln, one of our country's greatest presidents. And Abraham Lincoln led us during the tumultuous time of the Civil War, 1861 through 1865. And Abraham Lincoln, who liked to get his picture taken, you can tell the weight of this responsibility had an incredible impact on his physical health. If you look at pictures before 1861 and the beginning of his presidency to the end, he's almost unrecognizable in 1865. But early on throughout the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln developed a discipline of meditating upon the scriptures and talking to God through prayer. In the morning and at night, he would often quote the Psalms, specifically Psalm 34, verse four. You know what that Psalm is? The psalmist says, and I sought the Lord and he answered me. God delivered me, rescued me from my fears. That's exactly what hope is. That is what Paul is doing in Acts chapter 27. He's in the midst of this storm. The storm hasn't been alleviated yet, but he's got a word from the Lord. And as a messenger of God and as an ambassador of Christ, he stands before this ship and he tells them, we're going to get through this, that God has made a promise to me. And we've got a God who's faithful to keep his promises. I'm headed to Rome. And as long as you stay on this ship, we're going to make it. We have this same hope available to us in Christ this same hope that abounds in Paul in Acts chapter 27 abides in us. You say, well, what does that look like? Let me give you four things. Four things about hope. Hope in the Bible is a confident expectation of what is to come. Hope is an honest assessment. It's when you honestly assess your situations. Hope isn't the absence of reality at all, but rather the assurance of God in one's reality. It is the assurance that when times get tough, our God is present. When things seem overwhelming, no, his grace is overwhelming in and through this. When things seem unbearable, his power is undeniable. It is an honest assessment of who Christ is in and through us, which then allows us 
to be open, to open up with others. Did you notice how Paul didn't keep this word to himself? No, Paul's a prisoner. Paul's enslaved on this ship. He's the freest man in this whole entire vessel. He is freely going from person to person, sharing with them the message of God. We must do the same. We must see the situation for what it is, an opportunity to display God's grace and power in our lives, to not keep to ourselves, but know to display through us that we may abound in hope, abound in the hope that God has for us. Thirdly, we also then pray without ceasing. Did you notice that this message was from the overflow of Paul's communion and relationship with the Lord? This wasn't something that that Paul did half-heartedly. No, in, in regard to his wholehearted devotion to the Lord, his intimate relationship from the Lord, this message came from those things. And like manner, God does the same in our lives. Remember, when we're going through an unbearable situation, when, when, when something goes awry, feels off, we have hope. We have hope given to us by God in Christ. We have a confident expectation of what is to come. We have a God who is for us, not against us. A God who is with us, desires to work in and through us. So we're gonna honestly assess the situation. We're gonna open this up with others and we're gonna get other godly men and women praying for us, interceding for us, encouraging with us. And then we're gonna talk to the Lord. We're gonna commune with the Lord. And we're gonna remind him of what? His promises. Did you notice what Paul, that's what Paul gave them? Look at, look at verse 24. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You will stand before Caesar. He reminds them of his promises that God had given to him. Finally, we got to expect God to work. There's an expectancy. There's a movement from obedience toward glory that God requires of all of us. There's an expectation. The Lord, I don't know how, I don't know in what way, but you're going to work in our lives. And ultimately, that's exactly what happens. Ultimately, whatever Paul prophesied to them came to fruition. Notice that Paul, the prisoner, by the time he get to verses 27 through 38, is in complete control of this boat. He even orchestrates food, a meal. He breaks bread with them in a celebratory feast of God's guaranteed deliverance in verses 33 and 34. The storm is all around them, but on the inside of this ship is absolute celebration. Celebration of the guaranteed deliverance of God to these men. Do you see this victory? Do you see this calm assurance that Paul has? Ultimately, everyone who stayed on the ship, every single one of them, completely unarmed, secured. Not a single hair fell from their head. Be encouraged by that. I'm not minimizing your situations at all. Luke doesn't minimize this storm. We shouldn't either. Don't pull your hair out about this. Some of you need it. Don't be overwhelmed by this. No, you stay on board. You stay focused. You remain steadfast and you watch how the God of hope works in and through your life. Now, eventually the sailors begin to recognize land in verse 39. They then head unabated to this island and in doing so, they strike a reef or a sandbar in verse 41. Can you imagine? You got a once in a lifetime typhoon. We finally have some peace and clarity through this storm. We see land. And then as they're heading to land, they strike a reef. 
they hit a sandbar. Man, some things you just can't make up. But did you notice the goodness of God in verse 44? That even though the ship broke, blew up, that all 276 occupants of this ship made it to the island of Malta safely. How? God used the planks or the pieces of the ship to bring them to safety. Now, this is no small endeavor by the Lord. You see, the island of Malta is this small, remote island 180 miles northeast off the coast of Africa. This entire island is only 18 miles long, about from here to Sepulpa, eight miles wide. Now think about this. The Mediterranean Sea, which they were traversing through the majority of Acts chapter 27, is 970,000 square miles. They're in the midst of the storm. They can't navigate a thing. There's no GPS, no radar, no Siri, nothing. They had a word from the Lord. They had the hope of the Lord. And they find this island in the middle of nowhere. Can't you see how God orchestrates this entire thing? I mean, if God is so gracious to them, God is so gracious to care for them, even when the ship blows up, God is faithful to his promises. They grab these planks they grab this remnant, and that's exactly what will happen in your life. You will find sometimes that God will graciously drive you to your knees. He'll graciously gr drive you to a point of helplessness because it means you'll give total dependence to him. God will make a way. He always has and always will. You see, people are the way. No God will always make a way. And this same God who works mightily through a storm in a shipwreck, can work in your life if you'll trust him. Keep going. Stay on board. Remain steadfast. And God will work unexpectedly in your life. He did so through the Apostle Paul. Look at Acts chapter 28, verses 2 through 6. Paul and the crew arrived cold and weary, wet, onto the shore of Malta. And look who they encounter in verse 2. And the native people showed us unusual kindness for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain. We were cold. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and was fastened to his hand. Now, when the native people saw that the creature hanged from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Paul, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. And they were waiting on him to swell up and suddenly die. But when they had waited a long time, they saw no misfortune. And they came to him and they changed their mind and said, he must be a God. Think about this. I mean, we think we have trying times. Paul has been in a tumultuous storm. Over two weeks, barely any food, no means of navigation, imprisoned. He then, in holding the promises of God, seized the land of Malta. But his ship wrecks. He's clinging on to cargo and pieces of this ship to get to this island. And when they finally get there, I think the Lord has sense of humor about two seconds. We made it, praise God. He opens his eyes and sees a group of natives coming to him. Literally in the original languages, uncultured barbarians is the translation in verse two. Now, what would you have done? 
Have you been afraid? I would have. Have you been intimidated? Probably would have grabbed that plank as a means of defense. But notice God's providence. Notice that we have a God who's in control of all things, that works all things according to your good, Paul would say in Romans 8, 28, and his glory. These barbarians show remarkable hospitality. They're incredibly hospitable. They begin to form a fire because they see Paul and his crew are cold and weary. So Paul, seeing that hospitality, begins to emulate it, imitate it. Do you notice the servanthood of Paul in verse 2 and 3? He begins to gather these bundles of sticks and serve others just like Christ would. And in doing so, a viper comes at him, bites his hand. Not good. And so these natives wrongly conclude, well, obviously this man is a murderer. This man must have done something to war with this. You see, snakes were a symbol of divine justice in Greek mythology. Obviously, he's done something wrong. He survived the storm and the shipwreck, but nope, the snake got him. But to their utter amazement, in glory only solely reserved to God, Paul does not die. The snake dies. He suffers no harm at all in verse 5. And so then as they're waiting for Paul to suddenly drop dead because he's bitten by this snake, nothing happens. And they wrongfully conclude that Paul must be God. He must be some sort of God, just like the people of Lystra did in Acts chapter 14, verses 11 through 18. But Paul sees this for what it was, a divine opportunity. Not to express the glory of Paul or the power from Paul, but the grace and the glory and the power of Christ through You see, the Bible says in verses 7 through 10 that Paul would have an opportunity to meet the chief leader, the governor of all of Malta. And in conversing and fellowshipping with him, he would find out that this governor's father was sick, had a reoccurring fever or dysentery, probably due for drinking goat's milk in Malta. And so Paul engages them, prays for them, puts his hand on this man, and he's healed in verse 8. For healings are closely associated with the proclamation of the kingdom of God in Luke and Acts. And then hearing of this miracle, numerous people on this island who were sick and had ailments come to Paul to be healed in verse 9. Possibly hundreds of people are healed for the glory of Jesus Christ. And as a result, they honor Paul. The Bible says that he ends up staying there three months. No doubt he started a king work. Here's my point. God places his gospel in us to display his gospel through us. The entire time, from the storm to the shipwreck, God was driving him to Malta. That God was using these physical miracles, these physical difficulties to point to a spiritual healing. You see, snake stories aren't foreign in the Bible. Our first father, Adam, had an encounter with a snake in Genesis. And though him and Eve were made in the crowning achievement of God's glory, Satan embodied a snake. Instead of trusting upon the Lord, depending upon the Lord, treasuring the Lord, they were deceived. They listened to the snake and were bitten by the sinful venom from the snake. But even then, just as quick 
as they were in the rebellion, God is in his rescue. And he tells this snake that there will be one who will come in Genesis 3.15, who will be from the seed of Eve and the image of Eve. And you're gonna bite his heel, but he's gonna chop your head off. He's gonna crush your head once and for all. That there will be one who will come that will win one time, once and for all, make the way of salvation possible to me. And so throughout the entire Old Testament, God's people struggled with this and working their way back to God. You remember Moses, the great deliverer, the representative of God, came to Pharaoh and in conversing with his sorcerers, they had snakes, but Moses used his staff, threw it down, and his staff ate their snakes. God's representative is greater than the snake. And as God began to deliver God's people, began to provide the means of salvation, they were in the wilderness together. And in Numbers chapter 21, they began to be disgruntled to the Lord. They didn't want to trust his way anymore. They wanted to do things on their own. Yeah, storms will come. We'll provide for ourselves. Yeah, my life's a wreck, but I can fix it myself. And they trusted in their ways over God's ways. And God sends a snake into their camp. And they begin to be bitten by that snake. And as some of them began to die, they began to once again go to Moses, God's representative, and said, save us. We admit we can no longer do this on our own. And so God came to Moses and says, you create a staff and you create an emblem on that staff, a snake, and you lift that up high and exalted, signifying that it's dead once and for all. And anyone who was bitten, if they looked at that snake, they'll be healed. And they were. And salvation was provided for an instant. In the New Testament, God himself would come to the Lord Jesus Christ. The promised seed of Eve was now here. And as fully God and fully man, he begins to recount to one of the greatest Jewish teachers of all time, a man by the name of Nicodemus in John 3, who came to him, and how may I have eternal life? And Jesus says, you must be born again. You must revoke your way of life. You must revoke your means of dependence upon yourself and trust solely in me. And he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake and all of those who saw him were saved, anyone who believes in me shall have his sins atoned for, shall be saved. How is this possible? For Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Don't miss the gospel implication of this story. We have all been bitten by the snake of sin. And we have for our entire life, both intentionally and unintentionally, depended upon our own works, our own merits, our own medicine, devices, whatever it is to work our way to God. But God himself came for us, rescued us. As Jesus says, heaven descended down. And he took this bite from the snake. And he took our sin, your sin and my sin, upon himself. And he died. And three days later, he was risen. Because what is greater in him is greater than the world. And thus, the moment you believe in him, his righteousness, 
is available to you. That this physical miracle was once again another display of a spiritual reality. That those who abide in the Son and remain in the Son, who continue to follow the Son, may have eternal life. It is this truth that you and I live out. Let us stay on board. Let us remain steadfast. Let us keep going as we continue to make disciples and make disciples and make disciples. Follow Jesus Christ. May we be all aboard to wherever and whoever God leads us to. If you are encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe to hear other messages. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us online at fbcba.org. Thanks for listening to our podcast, and always remember, you are loved.